Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Strength and Conditioning at Netherlands Ski and Snowboard, Rob Walsh. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I am speaking to Rob Walsh, who is the head of SNC at Netherlands Ski and Snowboard. So Rob has a really interesting background coming from being a PT in a commercial gym to working in a private school over here in England, then as a senior lecturer at a university, and then where he is now at Netherlands Ski and Snowboard. So part of this chat is just a discussion around his background and how one thing has led to the other and how he's transitioned in the between the um the number of jobs that he's had and what he's learned from one and taken to the other but then later on in the conversation we chat about his work in snow sports we discuss eccentric training why that's been so important and been a huge part of his program how the skills of personal trainer has influenced his uh, practice with the snow sport guys and the coaches in particular and then all around educating coaches um, spending time with them how he's ended up spending time with them um, and how he's learned from what they wanted so he could tailor his program to to meet their demands so a really interesting chat with a really interesting guy who has um, from on, on the surface an incredibly cool job so I'm sure you'll get tons out of this whether you are working in snow sports or not the way I see it now is strength conditioning it is a service provider to the sport we're not the number one thing we service an outcome for a sport and if somebody comes in and you know they've had a really tough track session and we plan a really tough gym session and they're not able to do it then we pull back this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by eccentric so eccentric are a sweden-based company and is a developer of the groundbreaking flywheel training tools the k-box and the k-pulley and since its founding in 2011, eccentric products have gone on to be used in Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, NFL, NBA, a number of uh, other leagues around the world, including the EPL, where Leicester City, Chelsea and Arsenal are among the customers. So just to give you a brief bit of background on flywheel training with the K-Box and the K-Pulley. So backed up by multiple academic research studies, it's been shown to increase strength training effectiveness by not relying on gravity, but the inertia of the flywheel. So that improves the efficiency of training programs while lowering the total cost as compared to traditional training methods. So if you'd like to know more about Eccentric's products, the K-Box and the K-Pulley, head over to their website, which is eccentric.com, and that's spelled E-X-X-E-N-T-R-I-C.com, or follow them on Twitter or on Instagram at go underscore eccentric so just before we do get into this episode of the podcast i want to say a big thanks to Val performance makers of the nordboard groin bar human track and now force decks so the big news coming out of Val performance is the acquisition of force decks and all the staff the fantastic staff that come along with that acquisition so a really exciting development in terms of what Val Performance can offer in terms of uh, testing solutions. So may, you've maybe heard of the Nordboard. 
You've maybe heard of the groin bar, um, but if you are interested in a affordable uh, motion capture device, make sure you have a little look at Human Track. And also there is a post recently on LinkedIn from Dr. Daniel Cohen, who was the, uh, one of the founders of Forstex and explains why they decided to partner with Val Performance moving forwards. So I definitely encourage you to check that out. And if you are interested in any of the Val Performance products, head over to valperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at Val Performance. So big thanks to them guys for sponsoring this episode today. So without further ado, over to the episode with Rob Walsh. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I'm delighted to welcome Rob Walsh, who is the Head of Strength and Conditioning for Netherlands Ski and Snowboarding. So welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks very much, Rob. It's great to have you, mate. Just a bit of a pre-warning to those listening. I've got a little bit of a cold, so bear with me if I'm uh, coughing and spluttering. But just before we get into the, the meat of the chat, which uh, obviously myself and Rob are going to go into. You just want to give us a bit of a, a background on yourself. I know you've got a, an interesting um, employment history, which we'll go into. Interesting in a good way, which I'm really looking forward to having another little dive into. But I just want to give us a bit of an overview of where you've come from and what you're currently doing. Okay. Uh, kind of if I probably work uh, from the bottom up, um, I kind of graduated in 1999, so quite a quite a while ago um, with a sports rehab degree. Uh, so kind of a, an alternative background um, there. And actually when I graduated, um, I worked mainly in health clubs, um, clinically doing sports rehab, um, you know, diagnosing, assessing injuries, and also personal training. Um, and up until kind of about 2004 or five, that was kind of mainly what I was doing. And then starting to do some S&C through that time with teams, but not a full-time, kind of more private individual athletes, uh, through more through picking them up through being injured and then continuing on with the S&C after that and trying to integrate therapy, S&C together rather than having them fairly separated. Uh, I kind of did a master's around 2005 uh, online with California University of Pennsylvania in performance enhancement and injury prevention as there was no S&C qualifications in the uk around that time i think it was maybe one master's program um and then i started lecturing um, at a college and alongside that i kind of kept a private practice going in strength conditioning and rehab and i ended up uh, eventually working at middlesex university for just under 10 years uh with kind of anthony turnier chris bishop um and those guys and i ran, looked at mainly the sports rehab program um at undergrad level and master's level and then i lectured uh, on the master's program in strength conditioning and then kind of while doing that I ended up working a lot more in LTID type strength conditioning um, at school level um, along with kind of doing some consultancy with senior teams um, and then I spent kind of maybe about eight years uh, working with uh, Harrow School helping set up their strength conditioning facility, um, helping develop their systems along with their uh, director of sport. Um, and yeah, then basically from there, I left uh, higher education and Harrow and moved in 2015 to the Netherlands, a big, big change, uh, and worked with the snowboard and ski teams, adaptive and able-bodied uh, up to the Olympics last year. Um, also worked a bit with 
the uh, also with Bob uh, Skeleton Bob, and I've also done about eighteen months with the sprint team. Uh, so kind of one hundred meters to four hundred meters, guys uh, and girls. Um, and I've just kind of resigned now for another two years with the snowboard team. That's kind of my my background. I guess moving from a university to a private school, what what kind of role were you holding at, the, at Harrow? Was it? Yeah, what, was, was I actually it, did was both like at the same time. time. Sorry. I, yeah, okay. No, uh, that's fine, mate. Uh, yeah, I did both at the same time. Uh, so I worked at Harrow um, basically two afternoons a week and then at the weekends. Um, and the idea of that role was to help set up strength conditioning within the school. Um, and they started off with me just working with the technical or the, the uh, director of sport there. Um, coming in and delivering strength conditioning sessions with no facility, you know, um, just trying to work with the coaches, get the kids to move better. Um, and over kind of an eight year period, it moved to maybe four or five coaches almost full time there, um, or in and around full time with more secondary coaches that dropped in that helped with specialist areas and a refamp and rebuild of the gym facilities. And I know in the future, they're looking to even expand that even more. Um, so that was kind of where it started from. I had the director of sport there I had worked with before, uh, when he was an athlete and also with him at another school before that. Interesting. So you went from someone that was there, I get, so, so you were the only member of staff or was there a full-time SNC coach there no, when I, you started? I think it was probably one of the first SNC roles in schools in the UK. I think there was oh, no what year was this? Uh, this was 2000 and um, I think about 2008 and I'd kind of done stuff with him in probably about 2005, six. So in, yeah, okay. So in a couple, in a couple of years, well, five to 10 years, you'd gone from one SNC coach who was part-time and on a weekend to a full blown program. Yeah, and convincing the school that they should part with their hard-earned cash and develop a facility, which I'm guessing not that I've seen, but I'm guessing is pretty impressive. It's a so, very, what was the very what nice was, facility? Yeah, I bet, I bet. So, what was the process? What? How did you go from that to that? Um, I think one of the big things I had kind of done before and failed what was trying to hammer a square peg in a round hole. Um, so enforcing kind of my ideas or a system onto somewhere that has a big history, like Harrow School has got a big history. It's a very old institution. Um, so I went there with expecting to have it to be a different way than what it was. Um, and rather than pushing against that, kind of embraced some of its culture um worked on some real basics of just getting the kids to move properly um working with the coaches so a lot of it was time with coaches of what they valued what they wanted um coaching Which the was coaches what? um a lot of the time it was just you know we want fitter faster kids um you know we want them to be healthier um uh, and there was two strands to the program there there was you know high performance and also uh, a holistic approach so there was two strands running in, in tandem um but a lot of it was working with the coaches so what do they want to know about uh helping them build better sessions um and actually a lot of the time we invested was coaching the coaches so writing programs for them training them which was definitely outside my hours of work um 
but it, it helped them understand the process and helping them achieve their goals made them buy more into the process of what physical training could do and, and be, and that it's not just being in a gym, lifting weights, you can build a whole other, uh, a whole other element of things around LTID, you know, mental toughness, you know, building better people, communication skills, all of that sort of stuff. So you were actually taking them through a program, the coaches through their own program? Yeah, uh, some of the coaches really were interested in it. So we started coaching. Them. I mean, there was coaching sessions for them if they wanted it. They could basically, they could ask for my time and I would work with their team. So that was essentially how it worked on a day-to-day basis. They would go, hey, we want you for one hour a week to work with this team. And I either worked with them out in the field or on the gym. Um, and they could also ask me for help with education or information. Um, and I would help them with that. And equally, outside of my work hours, a lot of the coaches trained themselves, so we started to put programs together for them. Interesting. So I'm guessing that people will look at it, look at Harrow School now and think, great facility, uh, like you say, an, uh, an established institution that's on the face of it for very um, privileged kids, and they'll think that all them things are attributed to the success of what they're going, what they're having. But from our chat before, there's so much, so many other things that gone that went on behind the scenes that went to what that's that perceived success and it wasn't the facilities it was all the background stuff that you guys and the work that you put in to build that system from the from the bottom rather than the flashy stuff on the front yeah i th- i think this is one of the things that gets lost a little bit as school is kind of buy more into the physical training um you know our uh, we had we didn't have a gym when we started we had a couple of bits of metal welded together and a, a corner of uh, what was uh, uh, a, like a recreational room in the school as our training facility. And it was like that for three, three, four years before we extended and built the gym that's currently there. Um, and, you know, speaking to James Baker, state schools and private schools had the same issues with how uh, how how well kids move nowadays. You know, they don't run around outside as much. Everything is quite structured. There was a lot of movement quality problems um, when we went in there and, and looked at how well kids moved. Could they jump, land, twist, turn, bend? A lot of that stuff was just not great. So, you know, people talk about the money in it, but the big leveling factor is kids nowadays are just not, don't move or participate in sport as much as they used to. And that's a real shame. So it was, let's... Let's build a system of moving well, um, engaging in sport, make it fun. Um, you know, the, it's a very academically strong school, and that's the number one thing there. So you have to understand that and build your program around the stresses that the kids have um, as well. And I think we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, so essentially what we, we looked at doing was really the investment should be in people. You know, um, I was not there as much as some of the other coaches in the later years, but essentially the role was to look at are we building, are we developing the kids over from when they come in to when they leave to being, if we look at high performance, can they do everything? Can they Olympic lift? Can they squat well? Can they train with intensity? Do they understand training programs? If we left them on their own, you know, once they turn 18 and they're off on their own, will they have the life skills to put a program together themselves? Um, have they been exposed to all the different elements of strength and conditioning as they come up um, so that if they go and play for this club and it's completely different 
to another club, they still have those skill sets. So that was kind of one of our end goals is to make, uh, I kind of put down to have a, a kind of a great, uh, a great environment uh, and create good people and create athletes that are robust, resilient, and can be adaptable to different situations. That was kind of the end goal of it. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned periodizing around the stresses that the kids go through. And that's something that I've chatted to a couple of collegiate coaches about in the past on the podcast. Is this something that you figured out pretty quickly that this that needs to that needs to be done that your planning needs to reflect the other stresses that are going on with these kids, or is that something you learned along the way? I, I would say with everything you learn along the way, like we we looked at our numbers of kids coming in for sessions because everything was not compulsory. So you know we had to get buy-in from the kids as well as the coaches. Um, so what we started to see was coming up towards you know a, 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 a public school like that is perfect they're in school for you know four weeks and they have a week off or sorry every six weeks they have a, a, a week off so it's almost like a perfect periodized model um for you know they're in we we do a training block they have a week or two weeks off they're back in again um, but what we found was adherence kind of really dropped around exam periods and we had a relatively structured program you know in the more if we talk more about the high performance side of it relatively structured program for the guys to achieve what they want to achieve and we started to see a lack of attendance around big exam times or pre-exam periods and we worked out that they have so much structure and so much pressure that what we wanted to do was make life easier for them. So we ran fun sessions that were more fun, that were more less planned, um, more interesting for the kids, and had a kind of variety of different ones. So we kind of actually did circuits in the pure S and C stuff. We did some sprint stuff. We brought in some some challenges. We have a, a circuit called the Harrow Circuit that kids have to be at a certain proficiency level to do, and it was kind of there, there was a, a score uh, for that. So we brought in chat, physical challenges and things like that. And, and as I heard somebody say before, we, we shook our pom poms a little bit during that time. Um, you know, you're you're entertaining the kids and, and keeping them going and, and creating an environment that's kind of just a de-stress for them, that they can come and do the sport without, come and do strength training without the pressures that they might have in their team or academically. Is that something that you've taken on in terms of that, putting on them kind of sessions that don't, well, are more fun and, and kind of de-stress around your, with your more international athletes? Is that something that you've kind of continued with? Yeah. At the right time, I, of course. Yeah, I think, um, I think as I've got older, um, I, I try now and cut out as much noise as possible. So there are certain things you really want to get through. But if the athletes come in and they're tired, they're disengaged, you sometimes have to amp them up for the session or sometimes leave them alone. So, you know, we, we have a lot of athletes that just come off in Olympics. Um, and at the moment, we're, you know, if you come in and watch the vibe of our training, it's it's pretty quiet and pretty low key. If you actually watch the numbers that the athletes are lifting, they're pretty pretty high they're 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 lifting decent weight they're performing better than they were last year but those guys have had just come off the back of an olympics and they have this year they have a really long time before big training events again um if i take our adaptive athletes so really we're, we're not putting too much pressure on them in the physical environment they're doing other sports they're going skateboarding rock climbing we have a whole other array of things that are in there for different reasons um if we take our snowboard kids Actually, they've the juniors have a, just come off the junior world championships. So we had a different view for them. 
um, we had a more progressive, more structured summer for those guys coming up towards that competition. Um, so yeah, I think we have taken it forward, and the same the same with uh, the athletics guys. Sometimes you have to do fun sessions, and the way I see it now is strength conditioning. It is a service provider to the sport. We're not the number one thing. We service an outcome for a sport. And if somebody comes in and you know they've had a really tough track session and we planned a really tough gym session and they're not able to do it, then we pull back and we, we might have to run a fun session or whatever. And also, they're human. So you have people who have get break up, you know, uh, have a, a death in the family or something like that. So you have to react to the, the personal side of it as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So just to, just to kind of take a couple of minutes back on the, um, on the movement quality side of things, when you're talking about kids, obviously not running and jumping and, and things like that as, as maybe they used to, you just want to take us through a little bit of a, I suppose a, maybe a little sample session or something, what that's, that might look like for when you're having these kids come in the gym and you're thinking, we need to do a lot of work with these. Where are you starting? Because the kids, they obviously want to have fun, but they also need to get the work done. So can you just take us through uh, how your kind of mind worked in, in terms of developing that kind of session for them type of kids? Yeah, I, I mean, we were, we were pretty lucky in that they normally came off the back of doing their sport and came into the gym for the gym purpose. So slightly different. And most of our kids were starting at about 13, 12, 13. So we had, you know, secondary school age kids. Um, normally what we had was in their warm uh, We had kind of most of the mobility and coordinative type drills that we wanted to do as a warm up. So we stacked in the warm ups in sport and in the gym all the corrective, I don't like the word corrective exercise because it makes people not do it, but the developmental lifts, we change it to developmental lifts that we wanted kids to do. So we used a lot of isometrics, positional isometrics, and did, you know, sometimes did, if it was in a big group situation, did sort of games like holding squat positions with good form, piggybacks where kids were on their back, sort of a games mentality. And then as kids were more engaged in it, you could move it to, they knew why they were doing the lifts, some of the kids, and just wanted to do their development lifts and move into lifting. So I don't think there's a one trick fits all. Um, we did some big group stuff that was kind of fun and play. Um, the director of sport had in their PE classes, they had like movement skills, stuff like um, parkour and things like that coming in. So um, we added or subtracted stuff in the gym depending on what they were doing. Um, so I, I, you know, if I look at some schools, they have kind of like a, all the kids line up and do it like that. We had quite individualized programs quite early on. Um, so the kids could book time with me half an hour and we had from that, we would build a program out for them. So a physical program in the gym. So all their programs were pretty individualized to a point. And then we had sessions that were teams coming in, which would be more the group sort of combined training situations. Mm-hmm. Sweet. So just to go back again and just talk a little bit about your personal training experience. And this is something that really interests me because I know that a lot of personal trainers get a, a bad rap, but so many strength coaches that I've had on the podcast have come through a personal training background. And speaking to um, Kevin Carr, who's one of Mike Boyle's guys in his in his gym over there, I was talking to him about the actually amount of hours that he coaches per day 
given that he's working with everything from athletes to groups of 50-year-old guys that have got loads of money and just want to keep fit. And he was he was explaining that it's like six, seven hours per day that he's coaching, actually on the floor with a group or with an individual. And that kind of resonated with me and, and made me think about what I did in or what other people do in a lot of team sports. And that might be, it might not be anything. He might not be coaching at all. And he's doing that six or seven hours a day. And I'm guessing this is where the personal, personal training experience really kind of shows its value. But just want to talk to us a little bit about what you took from that experience and why you found it so valuable in kind of shaping your path and your career. Um, I think working in a personal training environment was at some levels really good in just your communication skills of, you know, you have to sell personal training um so you have to sell yourself to people and if you're not doing a great job and people aren't achieving their goals and they leave and you don't make money uh, that's a very simple, <laughs> very simple. separate yeah. one yeah very simple one that you learn from it um but it i think also you know when i lectured we when i did my degree i didn't work at training people while i was at university and i felt personally that that was a really poor oversight by me and maybe in the program at the time bear in mind it's not a slander in the program that was in 1999 um, and when I first started lecturing I tried to build in personal training awards in year one of the degree program so that people could could work in the industry from the very first year and I think you build up a great skill set of communication you learn while personal training in an environment that's a little bit safer if you make mistakes in your programming you're not losing medals, but you might lose some clients. Um, so you can build your programs, get experience within a personal training environment from individual to group training in a, a very scaffolded kind of safer environment. Um, I think you get a very broad spectrum of populations and people within personal training. And equally, it's moved to quite a high level. You know, if you look now, the private sector is competing quite heavily with you know, teams and clubs, um, health clubs can pull strength coaches away from those environments. So um, I think that that gives you a very good grounding. Equally, I take nothing away from somebody that goes in day one from an undergrad program into a team and starts delivering uh, programs. Um, I think also as a personal trainer, you have lots of coaches around you coaching on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you might have 10, 15 personal trainers in an environment that you see coaching. Um, uh, and I also think you have great personal trainers who can be great uh, strength and conditioning coaches. You have great strength and conditioning coaches who can be great personal trainers. Never really worried me what I was called when I was training people. Essentially, you're, you have a list of goals that someone wants to achieve, and you're trying to achieve it through physical training. Um, you know, uh, sometimes you're entertaining uh, somebody who doesn't enjoy doing physical training. It's the same sometimes with athletes. They don't enjoy the physical training, and you might be using elements of entertainment to encourage them to be in an environment that's not necessarily their sport. You know, no snowboarder gets into snowboarding going, yeah, I want to spend eight hours a week in a gym. You know, they, they go into snowboarding to snowboard. So sometimes there's elements of entertainment in there, be it at a rugby club, be it at a football club, that you get from personal training. So let's now you've mentioned it. Let's let's make a little bit bit of a jump to the more recent with the with the snow sports. What's that been like? Got moved, making that jump to work with them guys. 
got to be a little bit looser, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, actually, it's been interesting. I think we've, in the Netherlands, have been very lucky in that we're centralized at a high-performance environment that it's not just winter sport. You know, we have volleyball, BMX, we have all of that stuff. Um around us so i've not faced some of the challenges from some of the other people that i've spoken to in snow sports with the athletes they had a very good culture coming in um, but they hadn't had a strength coach so i think they were quite hungry to have that and they moved at the same time to that high performance environment where essentially it's actually kind of cool to be strong and fit and be an athlete um and they trained uh initially around around the same times as bmx who have a very similar kind of extreme sports sort of culture and those guys are are monsters in in the gym and you know you can still be this super cool snow sports guy or girl um but also be an athlete um and uh, you know it's it's nice to see that our guys find it cool and and understand that being an athlete doesn't stop them being an expressive snow sports person um it's just a tool to help them be better um you know like like an airbag like doing fitness work like doing skateboarding or surfing it's just another tool that makes them better and keeps them riding longer so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Rob. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss more about his current role with Netherlands ski and snowboarding. So we discuss eccentric training, as I mentioned at the start. We discuss how he spends time with coaches and why he spends so much time with coaches and has throughout his career in the various different roles. So I really, enjoy, uh, I really enjoyed part two. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping you will as well. So just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box Fitness are a specialist gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So from full gym fit outs to um, extra bits that could be added to your gym, if you want either of those things and anything in between, have a little look on their website and definitely check out their Instagram because they put a lot of their their gym fit outs on there and some really interesting stuff uh, they do on their Instagram. So they can be found on their website at blkboxfitness.com and on Instagram at blkboxfitness. So they've been all around Europe fitting gyms as of late. Um, So everything from schools to uh, Premier League football, um, they've done the whole lot. So make sure you check them out if you are interested in a full gym fit out or just some extra bits and bobs to, um, to add to what you've already got. So over to part two with Rob, hope you enjoy. So one thing I wanted to chat to you about is, and one thing we, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, which was the eccentric focused, uh, focused training. Just want to give us a little bit of an insight into your thoughts around that um, that training modality as, as a whole and then where it fits and why it fits into what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I think if you look at, if I look at predominantly, if I look at freestyle um, snowboarding, um, it, it's a landing sport. You know, it, it's, you're, you're coming down a ramp, uh, you're hitting a jump. So yes, you need to be able to propel yourself in the air and that will help you get more rotations, but, you have to land. Um, so you, if they land perfectly, uh, the load 
we don't have tons of data on this, but the load is, you know, if you speak to the athletes, they're like, if I land in the sweet spot, it's a pretty soft landing. If they land on the knuckle or they land too deep, then it can be pretty catastrophic. Um, so what we actually did was looked with the coaches. I spent a lot of time just looking at video with them and what they felt the strengths and weaknesses of the athletes were. Um, overall, athletically, you know, I started off with relatively young athletes. You know, most of my athletes are under 22. Um, I think my oldest is 22, uh, snowboarder, um, and my youngest is 15. So they're they're in that eight, middle age bracket. Um, so most of them, it was relative to body weight they weren't really strong but if i take our juniors they're all kind of you know one of them is almost a three times body weight deadlift uh at at 17 uh now they are pretty small guys but their their physical numbers in the gym have moved up considerably um we focused a lot on eccentric because they're absorbing landings um so we built a very clean up movement make the guys incredibly strong clean up jump and landing mechanics and work on rotation this is kind of in gym based stuff not kind of the adjunct stuff that we have alongside it um but the thing that we kind of saw was because uh we live we're based in the netherlands um it's the flattest country in the world uh we don't have many hills or much snow (laughs) so um it's kind of tough for us to get the exposure to those landings when they're not there so what we were finding was the guys are really strong we built a great base with them, but then they would go out snowboarding for two weeks and come back and go, you know, going from no really huge rapid eccentric loading to really huge rapid eccentric loading kind of defeats the uh, acute chronic load variable of like nothing for two weeks, then all day for two weeks. Um, <laughs> so we so we started using the K box to get some eccentric overload with them um so k box if people don't know what it is is a flywheel device um that allows you to overload eccentrically at higher velocities essentially um and we started kind of building in protocols with that uh quite loosely mind you uh, i'm not saying like this is an exact science because it's not quite loosely just started building it in more on the athletes feeling for how they felt like they're like you know this feels like I've hit the knuckle and it feels good to have this feeling before I go out there. So that's What's the really, knuckle, Rob. The knuckle is sorry, the uh the edge of the the edge of the jump, the point that you don't want to land on. So it's basically the the berm okay. as it goes into the um essentially in snowboarding you want to uh, if you imagine it like a triangle, you want to land on the side of the triangle. You don't want to land on the point of the triangle or on the flat on the bottom. You want to uh, land on the angle. Um so essentially they liked the they didn't love the k-box but they said it felt like snowboarding um so our our plan now is to do more investigation into monitoring those sort of loads and monitoring them to see are they you know if somebody has an injury what was their eccentric profile like before injury and are they able to eccentrically break at a rapid speed the same sort of stuff and mainly our training is for when they get it wrong you know, you know, when they stomp a really clean trick, it looks fluid and beautiful. When they get it wrong, it's uh, air ambulance and helicopter and eight weeks in rehab. So it's, uh, it's you know, we, we don't have a lot of minor hamstring tears or like hamstring issues or little niggles. We have, I'm good or I'm kaput. 
Um, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's in, very different. In terms, that, in terms of that eccentric profile, is that something you can get on K-Box? And... Yeah, you can start. That's what we're starting to look at is look at how much force they're breaking, how fast they're breaking it. Um, and it's probably probably something I'd like to pursue at PhD level. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we're starting to look at. Uh, we're starting to compare the guys against one another. Now, one of the things I would say is when I started, the guys' training age was really low. So we didn't put a huge emphasis, emphasis on it because their training age was so low. Um, we had, you know, body control issues with the younger guys. Now we're in a position maybe three years down the line with guys that have a very, very solid training age are you know really decent at their sport and we're starting to profile so you know all this stuff sounds really interesting and speaking to darren roberts and uh you know a bunch of other guys within um snow sports is you know it's it, all of this stuff is kind of new no one's put their finger on it um and i kept quite you know, I think as an SNC, sometimes you just have to be a filter and do the basics. We did a lot of Harrow is the same. Do the basics incredibly well, and the fancy stuff is the you know the the sprinkles on top when all the basic work is done. Um, I think as I'm getting older, I'm doing less and less fancy stuff and more and more basics, and trying to do that better and better. Um, so we're kind of at a stage now where the eccentrics, the, the real sport specific stuff, where our athletes are at a good enough level all around for that data to be usable and useful and the next step. But we so did introduce you, that type of training a, quite early. Okay, that's yeah, that's what I was going to ask the guests because I'm coming on to that. Yeah. Do you think there's a place for that to be considered one of the basics and not some of the fancy stuff? Yeah, I do. Somehow. I think. Okay. I think the the I think don't get me wrong. We've done it since I started there. Um, we just didn't look at. We looked at the data, and it was relatively erratic with the guys. Um, and as they've been exposed to it more, and their training age has gone up, then the data has kind of got a bit better and normalized and looked more consistent. So th that's the thing. You know, if you if you want to introduce something and gather the data later on, introduce it, but maybe don't burden yourself with collecting the data the whole time and analyzing it just look at it you know and and when it becomes right to look at that data at least they've been exposed to it uh for a while um the same with the track team you know we we brought stuff in with the athletics guys played with it in, in a safe environment that there's no fear of failure brought it in said we're going to trial this for a while get feedback from the athletes and how they like it how does it work in the sessions does it work for that group? Do we have buy-in for that group? Do they enjoy using it? And if they don't, and if they're not going to do it, they don't have buy-in, you know, have we explained why it would be useful? Yes, but they still don't want to do it or it's too time-consuming or there's an objection to it, then it's not going to work. Then just let it go um, and find another solution. So that's kind of, kind of more where I'm getting now with things is learning to let go and try and build, you know, build things in slowly if I want them in there and, and not be afraid to, to let them fail, but don't put all my eggs in one basket that that's the only means to an end. I mean, it took probably uh, two years to get a wellness system up and running well with our team. Um, so we trialed a wellness, different wellness systems for about 18, uh, for about a year with different athletes and had feedback. And eventually we chose uh, 
probably one of the cheaper systems on the market. But the coaches like how it visualizes. The athletes found it easy to use. Um, it was easy enough for me to use. Uh, there's more systems with more bells and whistles, but it's the one that works for our team. So I think people that's will want to know what that is. Why is that, Rob? Uh, that, uh, that one is uh, Metrofit. Uh, it's it's okay. an Irish company, actually, um, which is uh, obviously I'm Irish, but it's not a sales pitch being Irish. <laughs> I didn't know they were Irish until, until I until I picked the phone and rang them about it. But um, I've recommended it to a few people. I, I'm not biased towards one system over the other. They all have their pros and cons, but affordability-wise, I think they hit the nail on the head that it, if you want to use a system, I think it was like three, maybe 300 to 500 euros for a year for about 30 athletes. So as a stepping stone into getting it up and running and then moving to a more complex system, it does everything uh, relatively well. And they've been very helpful with how we've wanted to set ours up and also the, the data sheets that we get back have been uh, how it visualizes the data is very coach friendly so if you're a strength coach and your your coach has five minutes and you want to present data to him it, it looks pretty you know pretty data is nice data um, uh, so yeah you know that was that was one of my goals over three years was to get a wellness system in get it running and start to get data and start to look at things um that probably also was one of the things, you know, that took a lot of effort, uh, a lot of time. But we made some very big decisions on on going to snow camps versus not going to snow camps, looking at fatigue in certain athletes over others and how we individualize their programs on that. Um, at a day-to-day level, we probably don't look at it. We look at it, but we don't consider it too much because we speak to the athletes every day. Um, so it, it helps inform the process, but it's not the driver, but probably quarterly when we look back through it and we look at where we've had problems, it's informed change, you, you know, and two big incidents, uh, within it that I, I don't want to go into, but it, uh, it, it's been useful to kind of look at it that way. Um, I think where I dropped the ball on that with the athletes was not explaining well enough that it's not a, the day-to-day stuff is important, but we talk to them about that. But the cumulative data is way more important in how we start to change our programming for them individually. Um, so we started to get profiles of you know some athletes who fatigue after three weeks in a in a in a block, and some that last four weeks in a block. That was a big change for two of our athletes. One of the guys is on a three-week cycle, and the other guy is on a four to five-week cycle before his program changes. Interesting. So one thing one thing that has kind of run as a theme through our previous chat and this chat is your is the time that you've spent with coaches for for different reasons in the in in school um to get to know what they want but also with the guys that you're working with now to get to know what they want obviously they've not had an snc coach ever so you're coming in um so just talk just a little bit about i mean it's funny because everyone says it spend time with a coach you know, talk to them, see what they want to do. But actually, how did you go about being there and getting to know what you wanted to know and have them feel comfortable with you around and comfortable enough to tell you stuff rather than just think, who's this random guy following me? Um, I think taking the time to listen to what they, you know, going through the athletes, what their concerns are, what they want, um, I probably was pretty direct about some of the things that I wanted myself. 
Um, but they weren't really big stuff. You know, one of the big things for me was I really want the guys to um, to train with intensity. You know, uh, I want to make sure that in season that they continue training. Um, but I, if we do a block of, they were for them, they fed back that they were concerned that the guys would get tired from training in season. And I went, okay, but have they ever done an off season where they've got really fit? And when in season, we're going to drop. So we had that conversation about what a really good off season can do and how, when you take things out, that they're going to be able to maintain that when they go through. So they, they explained their fears to me of what physical training could take away from in their sports. Um, uh, we bargained a little bit about kind of the first camp that we would, you know, tell me about your first camp. They were like, yeah, they're never really that good. And the first camp, the guys were way better. They lasted longer, performed longer. And the coach, we had some buy-in. Uh, I think that was, you know, they, they wanted their athletes to be able, you know, they're like, this athlete can do six runs, then they're toast. And the athlete ended up to do, doing 10 runs across the week, week every day at a higher level. Now, some of that's perceived because they're just seeing them, but I think a lot of it, that was kind of um, sitting, speaking to them, going through their athletes, uh, and every one of them is different. Like, there's three different programs. So I've able-bodied freestyle snowboarding. I've got adaptive snowboarding. I've got adaptive skiing. Um, and within those, there's there's two different head coaches for each one of those programs. Uh, at the time, there was one. So each one of those have a different philosophy, a different ideas, and uh, different uh, are on a different journey with their team. So it was listening to their narrative, what they wanted, um, having cups of tea, uh, having coffees, staying after the sessions and communicating with them, being available, training with them, training them. I think that's one of the biggest things. If they're interested in training, you put programs together for them and they want to do that, that gets quite a big buy-in. Um, and then being in contact, I think one of the big things was when they were away in camp, understanding what they want from their athletes. So, you know, I don't like the way they move doing this trick. How can we make that better? Asking them, had they any ideas in the gym? Um, and essentially being a service provider to them is the biggest thing. You're providing a service to them to make them better at their sport. Not that SNC is the leading light for that sport. Which is sometimes hard to take for some people, I guess. Like any like any profession, everyone thinks they're the most important. They've got the most important job. So was that something that I guess that's you've you mentioned it right at the start in the on the um in the school side of things. I'm guessing that's something that you realise pretty quickly that I'm just I'm just here to provide a service and just like any other service. It's most yeah. I think athlete. I think I got I got hung up on that. You know, SNC makes people way better at their sport when the evidence isn't really clear on that. The evidence is clear that being very strong, being very fit, may prevent some injuries, makes you a better overall, increases your athleticism, but not necessarily your sports prowess. So I would tie into the narrative that maybe doing more of your sport makes you better. I think um, you know if you are. If you are incredibly weak and not very strong and not very fit, then you're not going to have the space to be – and this is actually one of the biggest things that coaches fed back on. If somebody's not very fit and not very strong, um, if you've ever done a sport that you're not good at when you're not fit, it takes all your physical capacity to deal with just not being fit enough to do that sport. 
and you're not really taking in the coaching. But when somebody's incredibly fit, incredibly strong, and they don't have to worry about their fitness, it's it's not something that affects them at the highest level. Their whole process of being able to focus on what's important, being their technical coaching, getting better at the technique of their sport, that was our ultimate goal. And I think that was probably the biggest conversation is I'm not saying that what I do is going to make them better. I think above a, a certain point, and this was probably one of the biggest ones, at a certain point, when I first started, the guys were not where I would have wanted them athletically uh, where and the, not where the coaches wanted them athletically. So we invested a lot more time in strength conditioning and physical training, uh, uh, more so in the off-season than they did on other sports. In the last 18 months, that paradigm has shifted the other way to they're doing half the number of sessions with me and more sessions in crossover sports, uh, gymnastics, aerial pursuits, and stuff like that. So that, and that, people found that kind of really weird that all of a sudden there's this huge shift to doing these other things. But our lowest common denominator was physical development, and that wasn't an issue anymore. So we had very high skill level at their sport and low physical conditioning and the coaches generally were like they're just not physically conditioned enough or strong enough to move to the next level we moved that up and kind of looked at well what's going to make them better more snowboarding more skiing more other sports that challenge them in different ways uh, make them riding lines on mountain bikes and stuff like that um and also you know once you get physically strong and physically fit and powerful there's only a certain amount of sessions you can do a week that add value um that's it you know it's uh uh and each one of the coaches is different how i approach one team versus another team is is relatively different to the point where we used to train all the teams together able-bodied and adaptive snowboard and ski um because physically uh, there was no it sounds terrible no specialization for the sport no deep specialization now there is so the teams train independently um so that was kind of another big change within a, a three-year two and a half year period mm-hmm. so just you mentioned about when the guys are away on camp so you're you're based at a central location and they will go out and you will not travel with them is that correct uh yeah some so- camps i'll go to maybe one one or two a year um yeah normally because it was always a team based in Patton. Also, excuse me, if the snowboarders were out, the skiers were probably in. So I was still delivering sessions. Um, so camp-wise, I've probably gone on a couple of camps a year, and that's probably moving to more camps now. So are they training? Are they training in the camps? Or are they doing all their physical stuff with you back at central location? So they do their physical stuff with me back at a central location. And then the technical coaches take them kind of maybe for other sports or uh, look at some of the other stuff like that or and, and our at the gym sessions. And then when they go away, we, uh, we tailor the program down when they're away. So we have kind of target number of sessions per week. Now, uh, you know, if you hear Darren talking about herding cats and, <laughs> you know, it, it is like that. You know, you got a rugby team and you got Monday, you got this, Tuesday, you got this, Wednesday, you got this. In Papandale, we have that. But when they go to the snow, it's all dependent on the weather. So the guys could go for a week and we've programmed, you know, a peak for that week and the, the weather is terrible and they've got no riding. So it ends up being a training week. So um, I've learned to write my periodization up until the snow camp start in pen. 
and then the rest of the season's written on pencil in a notebook <laughs> that I can rub out and uh, change on a daily basis. Uh, and the biggest thing with that is communication with the coaches. So, you know, speaking regularly to the coaches, they have a set kind of goals. Um, you know, they they know the program pretty well. They know what we're trying to maintain when they're away in snow. Um, and sometimes they're hitting two sessions a week. Sometimes they're hitting three. Uh, sometimes they're hitting none, depending on on it. But at least I get the data back from that, and we have we're now getting more pre-planned on where they go, what the gyms are like. Um, the guys travel as well with the K box so that, you know, it fits in a suitcase. So they at least have one variable that they can be consistent with if they know the gym is not going to be good where they are. Um, so yeah, one of our big goals was to keep the guys training in season so that we don't have a huge drop off in, in qualities because, you know, they're back on snow right now. Uh, they're starting to go back on snow. Um, but their competitions aren't really until January, February time. That's a big, long time to go without training if you stopped in September, October. Um, so that's kind of one of the goals with them. Interesting. Okay, mate. Well, I've promised you that I'll keep you under an hour and I'll, I'll let you uh, crack on with your evening. But just a little roundup, where can people learn a little bit more about you? I know you said you were... You were uh, aiming to be a bit more active on social media, but are you? Um, is that planned in fruition, or is that just been sidelined? Yeah, it, no, no. I, I am actually going to. It's a, it's a goal to try and be a better, better, better person. I actually have to look up my Twitter handle right now. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to. Something. I'm trying to use. Yeah, it's, it's athletic. <laughs> uh, hang on. Uh, athletic evil uh so uh athletic evol is my twitter and my instagram which is kind of a mix of uh off snowboarding and training um i'll just give people now what that one is okay um it's athletic underscore evolution is uh my instagram which nice. in the next one should should get a bit more coherent and um if people want to reach out to me about it uh can reach out to me that way either one of those they're they're Super. pretty open Super. i think the instagram is one I'm, I'm probably going to use a little bit more uh just for videos of training and uh stuff like that yeah, that'd be cool. Of your own stuff, or are you allowed to put? Will you have to put athlete athlete stuff? Yeah, on? the athlete stuff is nice. on there, and normally, normally, uh, normally the kind of more fun stuff that we do with the guys is on the uh, the video feed, like the kind of dailies, um, and then th- there's just pretty pictures of snowboarding. <laughs> the other stuff Happy on there. Days. Yeah, yeah, too right. Okay, mate. Well, thank you very much. I'll uh, I'll let you go and crack on with your night, but really appreciate your insights. And, uh, no worries. Thank uh, you very much for uh, talking to me. Nah, pleasure. And we'll catch up soon. Brilliant. Cool. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Rob. So firstly, massive thanks to Rob for giving up his time and being so open and honest about the stuff he's doing over in the Netherlands. Also, big thanks to Val Performance, who can be found at valperformance.com. Eccentric, who can be found at eccentric.com. And Black Box Fitness, who can be found at blkboxfitness.com. So I've got some really interesting guests over the next couple of weeks, a couple of part twos, um, a couple of part ones. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will speak to you next week.